Good evening, everyone. Welcome to our live broadcast. First of all, um, apologies for those who came last night and didn't see me, or Robin. We were both away. Um, with school starting up, I'm taking two courses in religious studies one on approaches to the study of religion and the other on culture and religion both of which I think are um, somehow useful and the third one is French but with that starting up I've uh, gotten a little bit caught up I'm also running or facilitating Buddhism Association at McMaster University and the Peace Club, Peace Studies Society. So we're doing the Peace Walk and we're going to be working on various peace-related issues for the promotion and cultivation of peace, which is, I think, also quite useful. But um, as a result, I've been a little bit caught up. So I may not do everything that, it, that people expect me to normally do. I apologize. But hey, it's all free, so. And it's a lesson in impermanence. To not cultivate expectations. So today we're looking at Anguttara Nikaya Book of Fours, jumping to 119, and and so on. We're actually going to go through a few suttas here. I'm not going to go into great detail. Um, I've got a, a, I think, one really good talk on these suttas. Excuse me, in... Uh, and I did in Winnipeg, I think. Uh, it's on danger. So if you look up the talk I gave on danger, it's got it's probably better than anything I'll give tonight. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna go into as much detail this time. Maybe I will, we'll see. But I've also got questions to answer, right? So don't want to spend too much time on it. There are twelve dangers. This is the famous set. The famous, it's in my mind the, the important set of dangers in Buddhism. This is, there's danger. There are potential events that rest beyond the event horizon in the future. that either have the potential to arrive, to come to us and for which there's no reason to think that they won't or in some cases that are inevitable and it'd be foolish to think that they won't so 
things that will come to us that are that will cause us suffering hence dangerous they are dangerous but these dangers are split into three categories Sutta 119 gives us dangers for everyone these are the inevitables Bhaya. So we might say, well, then they're not danger, it's, it's a certainty. But they're, they're dangerous in the sense that they're a danger for one who is born, or a danger for one who intends to be born. Right? They're a, a problem with being born again. If you're born, mm, well, there are things that are in our future that if we're not careful, mm, we're not careful will come to us. That's the point. And then we go on, we're going to skip we're going to skip these one twenty because those dangers are not really all that important. But we go on to one twenty one and we've got dangers dangers specific to those who do unwholesome deeds. So these are dangers that face us who still do things, do bad things. And 122 are dangers for those who do good things. Those of us who attempt to do, to better ourselves spiritually. There's danger. There's, there are things that we have to be beware of that will be a danger to our spiritual life and to our spiritual practice. So three sets of four. Start with the first one. So what is the danger that comes to us all? Danger that is for all? If Whether or not we do good or evil. It's a danger that can be avoided. It has to be avoided through a special type of good. Good that leaves behind what we call samsara, a good that takes us out of the rounds of rebirth. Because these dangers are jati bayang, the danger of birth, jara bayang, the danger of old age, biadi bayang, the danger of sickness, and marna bayang, the danger of death. We are in danger of meeting with all four of these. So jati, birth, well birth doesn't seem like a really dangerous thing. We don't remember our own birth and it may have been a little bit painful and stressful, but it can't have been that bad, surely. Uh, but you see, the danger of birth is that we don't know where we're going to be born. And the danger of birth is that it leads to old age, sickness and death. That's the result. A great amount of our spiritual life as Buddhists is reducing the nature or, or limiting the, the, these dangers. And it, it's uncomfortable to a lot of people, the idea of somehow like nihilism, you know, like... Mm, just, just disappearing. And indeed, there's 
there's in a sense that's how it appears and there's no getting around the fact that the ultimate goal is no more rebirth but it, that's only the culmination of a gradual practice of reducing, limiting rebirth and so in, as in all things Buddhism is about uh, reducing suffering and, and in all, as in all aspects it is a gradual path that leads to an inevitable conclusion but it's inevitable so you'll start with an easily agreeable truth that no one wants to be born in hell and so you reduce and limit your ability to re be reborn in hell Um, but eventually there's an understanding that even being born as an animal is not so good and even being born as a human being is fraught with peril it's interesting how, is he, how, how so many human beings would uh, disagree with that disagree with the idea that being born as a human is problematic or is not even problematic more than problematic is uh, it's a bad thing and to be born as a human is somehow bad. That would be met with great um, re rejection, you know, great hostility from most people. And understandably, because we're very much attached to being human, right? and are being born human. We wouldn't have been born a human if there wasn't some attachment there. And throughout life, we become more and more attached and, and comfortable in the normalcy of, of being a human being, which is somewhat absurd. There's nothing normal about being a human. Uh, it's very hard to get around, get your head around that idea, but in some cases, but there is nothing normal about being a human. There's nothing natural about it. Human being, being a human being is the most perverse not the most, but it's quite perverse. And the idea of two beings slapping their bodies together to produce certain fluids that provide the opportunity for the one in a million cells in those fluids to come together and create the opportunity for a, a new human that is then carried around in a special uh, carrying container inside of one of these humans causing great stress and discomfort to both only to be expelled violently from the host human covered in blood and mucus and then to go on and be subject to all sorts of confusing um, thoughts and emotions and interactions and experiences that cause stress and discomfort and confusion and addiction and aversion and eventually become familiar become comfortable 
and then in no long time are, are, are swept away through old age, sickness and death or, or um, in very short time if, if life is cut short but eventually life ends that's being a human idea being that eventually there's a realization of that and yeah, wouldn't want to do this again and again it's just not really worth it all that work just to die mm. and then eventually realizing that even being born an angel or being born a Brahma, well not eventually but there are people through the, through the practice of Buddhism who we would say come to realize other people might say come to be you know, be deceived, perhaps. It depends who you believe or what, what your beliefs are. But our claim is that eventually there's a realization that, well, it's, it's actually quite an obvious truth that nothing is permanent, nothing is stable, nothing is, uh, nothing is certain. There's no refuge. And so these dangers wait for us all. And these are considered to be dangers things that could be avoided if we just would let go. The more we let go, the more limited our options for rebirth are. Limited to those forms of rebirth that are most difficult to see as being unpleasing, as being undesirable, as being dangerous. So we'd be more likely to be born as a human or in, in heaven or even as a god. until we finally let go of those, potentially, through our Buddhist practice. And we avoid the dangers. We avoid these perils. We free ourselves from the danger. So, those come to everyone. Now, furthermore, if we put those aside, it gets worse. Because not only are we subject to being born old, getting old and sick and dying, we might on top of that do nasty things to other people, hurt others, harm others, wish harm to others, say things, harmful things to others. And uh, that's dangerous. There are four, four dangers involved with doing things like that. As you can, you're welcome to Buddhism, there's no judging. Not, not, not in terms of um, cultivating aversion towards people who do such things. If someone goes around killing and stealing and lying and cheating, power to them. But they've got to realize that there's great danger in in doing that. There's peril for such a person. Four of them, actually. Atanuadabaya. They blame themselves. Paranuadabaya. Others will blame them. Dandabaya. They will be punished. And Dugatibaya. They will go to a bad place. They will be reborn in a bad place. F 
for four dangers. So we talk about karma, right? Why is it bad to do bad things? Where is the proof? Where is the evidence that doing bad things leads to gives a bad result? It's sad that that, that sort of question actually exists. That, 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 that we are so lost that we can't even see the problem with doing bad deeds. Right? We think if we can get away with them, we mostly think of the third one. If we can avoid the third one, dandabaya, if we don't get caught, punished, power to us, we will be happy. Nothing could be further from the truth. You blame yourself. People who do evil deeds are much more likely to feel guilty. Much more likely to feel paranoid. How can you feel good about yourself when you do other thing, do things to hurt others? When you harm others, how can you care about your own welfare? It's interesting. It's interesting how people who, who are, are engrossed in doing evil deeds tend not to uh, tend to be careless about their own happiness. Those who harm others tend to be have a difficult time attending to their own happiness. There's karma for you. It's a part of the way the nature, the, the way the universe works. We are, we are mirrors of each other to some extent. When we harm others, all we keep in our minds is the concept of harm. And so we, we suffer as a result. We don't care for ourselves when we don't care about others. We are like facets of the same gem. It's quite interesting. I mean, this is this is uh, empirical. You can see this. People who harm others tend not to think so so carefully about their own well-being. They tend to uh, get frustrated easily. They are rash, impetuous, reckless. Baranuada. Other people will attack us. Who will think well of the person who does poor, does harm to others? Who will think well of such a person? Only those who are also equally corrupt and being corrupt themselves, they won't actually wish well of the other person. They will manipulate and... deceive each other. Any good person, any person who actually had a desire to help others will shun such a person, will look at such a person as being piteous, pitiful, not worth, uh, not worthy of praise, not worthy of support, not worthy of assistance. assist them, you assist them in doing evil deeds such a person will be shunned by the average individual most people will shun or say nasty, say bad things about such a person a bad reputation will be spread about, about such a person that's pretty empirical as well dandabaya but inevitably bad things happen to them I mean simply by associating with other bad people if you're a person who likes to harm others or is, is, is engaged in the harm of others and 
feels that's an appropriate way of behaving. Well, you're going to be surrounded by other people who feel similarly, right? Birds of a feather and all that. And as a result, being surrounded by people who are bent upon the harm of others, who can stands to reason, you're more likely to be harmed as a result. But, of course, more glaringly, those who are in a position of authority, those who are in a position of power or strength, will punish you will hurt you for your bad deeds. Your victims will seek revenge. Dandamaya, the stick. Dugatibaya, this is the ultimate. This is what most people think about, as about when they think of karma. They think about the belief, they say, in an afterlife. It's not so much a belief in an afterlife. Well, it's just a belief that life doesn't end at death which is, I guess, pretty much saying the same thing. But, I mean, the only, it's, it's, it's just a, it's not a belief in some magic that keeps track of your bad deeds. It's a continuation of this guilt mind, this guilty, perverse, evil, corrupt mind that leads you on to experiences of a sort, of a kind. And so a person who's engaged in the performing of evil deeds is both in this life and the next destined to suffering. So they will go to hell or they will be reborn as an animal or they will be reborn as a ghost depends on their state of mind depends on the type of type and weight and prevalence in the mind at the moment of death of those evil deeds that they've performed these are the evils that await someone who does evil deeds and lastly we have um, this colorful imagery I'm going to go to the English here. Let's see. We'll look at the Pali and the English. Umi. Umi. These are the four dangers. Udaka Rohandasa. These are the dangers for one who crosses the ocean. Udakora. Uh, goes down, goes into the water. Ah, so this isn't even about a ship, I think. This might be just about someone who falls into the water, say. Maybe their ship sinks. Uh, what do they have to worry about when their ship sinks? Someone who goes into the water. Maybe not ship sinks, but someone who attempts, let's say someone who attempts to swim across the ocean, like a meditator. This is, these are the dangers that are for those who attempt to cross the ocean of samsara. What are the dangers that they have to face? Well, one who tries to cross the ocean has four dangers that they face. Umibaya, the danger of waves. Kumbilabaya, the danger of crocodiles. 
happen if there are crocodiles in the ocean? Let's say water then. Awata baya, the danger of whirlpools. And susuka baya, the danger of sharks. Or a kind of fish, maybe not a shark. So here it says alligators. Oh, come on. What's kumbila? Crocodiles. Mm. I don't think it's alligators. I think we've got crocodiles and then we've got fish like sharks. Susuka. But we have an old dictionary calling it an alligator. Doesn't matter. These are, uh, these are analogies, metaphors. For the four types of dangers that confront dangers that present themselves to those who wish to better themselves spiritually. These are good ones. This means that in your attempt to do something spiritual, there are four things that are going to present danger and, and knock you off your path, drown you, kill you. It's kill your spiritual life. Umi baya. Umi is waves. So this is referring to the Buddha says, suppose there is a, a meditator, let's say. I mean, usually talking about monks, but let's just say a meditator who leaves their home with the thought. Let's look at the Pali because it's so poetic. Otinomhi jahatiya. I am surrounded by by birth, jaraya, old age. Maranena, death. Sokehi, sorrow. Paridevehi, lamentation. Dukehi, suffering. Domanasehi, depression, maybe. Mental pain. Upayasehi, upayasa is despair, grief. Dukotino, I'm surrounded by suffering. Dukapareto. No, duk otina, I have fallen into suffering. Dukkha preta, I am surrounded by suffering. Apeva nama imasa kevalasa dukkha kandasa antakirya panyayeta. We chant this in Thailand. This is a chant that they do. Oh, that I were able to put an end, find an end this entire mass of suffering that's how one comes to Buddhism pleasant isn't it many people come to Buddhism because they're in great suffering which is perfectly valid I mean what that means is they've, they, they're a thoroughbred horse right I looked at this a horse that when it feels the whip it speeds up. It realizes something needs to be done. Oh, yes, I should go now. A meditator, who, a person who experiences suffering and then decides to come meditate is certainly an exceptional individual because many people, when they experience great suffering, will just drown themselves in some drug or some pleasure or perhaps even kill themselves to escape. 
but not this person. This person leaves their home and goes to become a meditator. And uh, when they do that, what happens? Well, they are taught. Their fellow monks, fellow meditators teach them and say, walk this way, look this way, practice this way, wear your robes this way. They are taught, they get instructed. Their meditation teacher says, direct your mind this way, don't direct your mind that way. Practice this way, don't practice that way. And they start to get kind of frustrated because they think, wow, when I was a lay person, nobody told me what to do. I got to tell other people what to do. And now I'm, I'm here and I have to listen to this guy tell me what to do. And they get annoyed. They get irritated. They're irritated by having to follow instructions, having to do things a certain way, not the way they want to, having to eat at a certain time, having to follow all sorts of rules. Many monks become irritated. Some meditators as well become irritated and displeased. They find it, well, most meditators will find it unpleasant in the beginning. All of these practices seem very unpleasant. As anything would be for someone who is addicted to pleasure, is addicted to things in a certain way and can't get what they want, and become displeased. And as a result, they give up. They go back home. That's the danger of waves. The danger of waves is a designation for anger and irritation. Sometimes your teacher can be frustrating. Sometimes the meditation center can be frustrating. The other meditators can be frustrating. These are waves. This isn't where the ocean is no longer calm. Because calm water you can easily swim. But when the waves come it threatens to drown you. Tossing you here and there. Your mind is tossed about by the anger and irritation. And that's a danger. That's the first one. Second one, well, suppose there's someone who goes to be a meditator, but they are told they may not consume certain things, they can only eat at certain times, and they only eat the food that they're given. They can't have cheeseburgers or uh, pizza or cheesecake or all these things that chips and pop and candy and all the good stuff. And they have, don't have soft and comfortable chairs and all the things that they consumed. Maybe let's include entertainment in there. Their consumption is limited. And uh, this person starts to think to themselves, wow, when I was a layperson, I got to eat and drink and consume whatever I wanted. These monks seem to put a gag over our mouths. That's what this person thinks. And being angry and displeased, they leave, get out of there. This is because of crocodiles. Crocodiles have big mouths. So this is a designation for gluttony.
because you have to live a life of bare necessity as a meditator and as a monk we try to live a life of bare necessity not eating too much not sleeping too much not even talking too much and a gag over our mouths so the crocodiles can't take that because they live for their mouths they live for the consumption and that's a problem Number two. Number three is whirlpools. Awatta. Yes, whirlpools are dangerous. They drag you down. And so suppose someone comes to be a meditator and then as a meditator they well here's a monk. You know, a monk when they go on alms round and then they see a, an ordinary person engaging in all these Pleasant, pleasant experiences. You know, as a meditator, they think about back when they were able to eat and drink and enjoy all the things that they wanted to enjoy. They think of sensual pleasure. So this number two and number three are a bit similar. In fact, all four of these are related. But this one specifically isn't related to sensual pleasure. Not specifically in not specifically gluttony or eating. This one is about the whirlpool is sense desire. Sense desire drags you down. Wanting to see and hear and smell, and taste, feel beautiful things, good things. Or maybe specifically here, if we want to, to differentiate, this is in relation to the idea of being uh, uh, living lay life, right? So it's not so much in terms of consuming as it in, ter in terms of being. The concept of being a lay person is much more delightful because you can do so many things. You can go here and go there, go visiting people, go to dances and go to bars and go to parties. And you can do all sorts of good deeds as well, right? You can help people. I get lots of med sometimes get meditators who feel they'd be better served by going out into the world and helping the world, doing good deeds. And they feel like they're shackled here in the meditation center. They can't go out and do good deeds and so they leave and they don't do the best good deed of bettering their minds, purifying their minds. So this is a whirlpool. Drags you down. It's inferior. All these things are inferior to the practice of the bettering of your mind, mental development. Number four is a shark. A shark is a designation for women. So I'm going to go out on a limb and assume that it means specifically for those who are attached to the form of a woman, usually of the male persuasion, sometimes not. And I'm going to go out on a limb and assume that this means that for those who are attached to the form of a man, then the opposite will be true. A man will be a shark. Yes, attachment to the op to to gen to a attachment to gender, I suppose, or sexuality, let's say. 
a meditator, a monk will go off into the village and will see some beautiful uh, woman loosely attired, it says. sees a woman with her dress in disarray and loosely attired. And when he sees them, lust invades his mind and it, it's like a shark that bites and doesn't let go. You ever saw that movie Jaws? Doesn't let go. Yes, this is a, this is the most the most perilous for a monk. Uh, we used to wa watching in Thailand. You could see this. Monks would come up with all these excuses as to why they had to disrobe, and in the end, it all came down to their sexual desire that they, of course, couldn't admit rather than admit it, they'd come up with all sorts of excuses. But you could always, you could say, ten to one odds as a woman. Or it's even the thought of a woman. Or it's for, it's we're all men. And, or in some cases, homosexuals, it might be different. There have been cases of that. Um, but the same goes for, I don't know so much, the same goes for women. I know, it, I know men are stereotypically more I think infatuated in that way and have a hard time keeping it in their pants so to speak but it goes for all the idea of sexuality is, is it can be a real drag pulls you down bites you and doesn't let go so these are the dangers there's nothing in here about how to escape these dangers. I mean, that's about our, our practices, of course. This is a part of the practice. But identifying these dangers is quite useful. The other ones, of course, are to be identified and, and thereby abandoned, the practice of evil. But we don't abandon the practice of good just because there's danger. But without acknowledging these dangers, it's, it's, it's easy to get caught by one of them. And so knowing them in advance, identifying them in, them in advance is a support for our practice. And like someone crossing the ocean, we have to be ready for all of these. Be ready for the waves. Don't let them overwhelm you. Be ready for the crocodiles. Gag their mouths. Be ready for the whirlpools. Don't get sucked down by them. Be ready for the sharks. Don't let them bite. So, these are the four dangers for those who do good deeds, and altogether these are the twelve dangers. Which is, I think, a fairly good teaching. But that's all for tonight. I've gone on way longer than I'd hoped. And so we're back to answering questions. When one, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> sorry. When one wants to go further on the path of the Dhamma and parents don't approve, what shall one do? My mother wants me to finish my study and then I can be free to do whatever I want. She gets very agitated when I mention taking a break of my studies to do something for the sake of Dhamma. Okay. 
do it. I mean, it's not... Your mother's agitation isn't particularly valid, so... I mean, the cold hard truth is that you should still do it. Unless you're talking about becoming a monk, which isn't at all necessary. Because it's, you know, the reason for becoming a monk is a monk is uh, taking a step, a change of lifestyle. As a meditator, you're just taking a, taking time out, to sort things out with, you know, potentially the idea of going back to school. Um, you know, the Buddha said many times you should think like your head is on fire. If your head is on fire, do you really worry about what your parents are going to say if you tear off your clothes and jump in the lake or you know, do something drastic to put the fire out with parents with, with people who have this expectation of us um, there's no way but to to disappoint them unless their expectations are hey why aren't you becoming enlightened <laughs> Their expectations about you are about things that are meaningless. Then the only the only answer is to I mean not the only answer, but it's it's not wrong to dis 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 there's a word there. Take away that illusion dispossess them of those beliefs something like that I think a lot, I think there are Buddhists who would disagree with me on that but great good comes from it of course for yourself but also for the people who you dispossess of those beliefs of those attachments you know may make it very, very upset at you, but uh, it's a cause of their their ignorance, their 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 misunderstanding of what's good and what's right. Maybe that's very harsh. I don't know. I mean, I guess ideally, if you can sort something out with them, that would be more comfortable, smoother. But you know, putting aside your spirituality to make someone else happy is, I I think the wrong way. Oh, I'm, we're supposed to push this button. We're supposed to push the answering button. Robin, do you have an answering button? Do you have all these buttons here? On the question? I don't think I don't think so, no. You don't see the green and the red buttons? On each question? I have one that says answered. No, I mean, I see, I have a green and a red button on each question. And red means delete, green means begin to answer. Okay, I do have one, yes, start answering. Okay. So, press that. That's right. Okay. So I'll do that when you we do, start reading the you question. Do the, you do the buttoning. Okay. And when we're ready to go on, you, you click, the, there'll be another button that says check. Okay, great, thank you. Bhante, an enlightened being changes permanently. How is this if mind states are all impermanent? Thank you, Bhante. 
Enlightened being doesn't exist. There's no such thing as a being. A being is just a concept. So nothing changes permanently. Enlightenment ends the potential for the arising of certain experiences. But that's just because there's no... Um, there's been a... There's been a change in the nature of the... The stream. Yeah, I mean. yeah. The point being is that impermanence is is a quality of mind states. It's not a quality of of um, concepts. So each mind state is impermanent. That's the point. And mind states are all that exists. Now, the um, potential or the the nature of those mind states can change forever can be altered irrevocably I mean that it mostly it isn't mostly there's the potential for the arising of any mind state but Nibbana is special in that way um, in that it irrevocably changes the potential or it, it destroys the potential for the arising of certain mind states In meditation, I sometimes find myself leaning to one direction or another, thereby reacting to the inequity of the other direction, leading myself to feel off-balanced. Is there a way I can adjust to a proper balance if I find myself leaning to one direction or another without resulting in a, without, without reacting in a chaotic manner? Thanks. So there's no proper balance. Um, and that's important because you don't want to judge this state. If you find yourself, feel that you're leaning, you can say feeling, feeling, or knowing, knowing, knowing that you're leaning. And um, it might be in your best interest to, to straighten up, so then you just say straightening, straightening, or wanting to straighten or something, and straightening, straightening, or bending, or however you say it. Um, but it's not something to get upset about, and if you do get upset about it, you say upset, or disliking, or worried or so on. And it's just a part of your experience. So the most important is to be objective about it. As of late, my mind has become quite scattered and perturbed. Thus, before I returned to the complete form of vipassana meditation, I was thinking of solely acknowledging the rising and falling of my stomach. I am intending this to create a hybrid between samatha and vipassana, as while I still want to cultivate insight, I need to calm my mind, as it has been overrun by anxiety, fear, and doubt. Do you think this is a good line of thinking? to first calm my mind and then to return to ultimate reality? I wouldn't do a hybrid. I mean, if you want to practice samatha, then go practice a pure samatha meditation. But, um, you know, my, my advice would be to learn to let go of the desire for calm and learn to let go, to the, let go of the 
uh, anxiety, fear, and doubt. You know, learn to m meditate on those things. Anxiety is just anxiety. You're not overrun by it. It just arises and ceases. If you're anxious, you'd say anxious. If you're afraid, you'd say afraid, afraid. If you have doubt, you'd say doubting, doubting. No biggie. But it's completely up to you. I just, I wouldn't recommend a hybrid. That's not a good idea. And I certainly wouldn't rent, uh, recommend creating your own type of meditation. Not unless you're a highly advanced individual. Of course, many of us think we're highly advanced individuals. It can be dangerous in and of itself. Anyway, I leave it up to you. I'm not your mother or your father. When I know an object as it arises, my awareness switches to the word I'm saying to myself, as if I'm listening to myself saying feeling, feeling, for instance, rather than noting the original object. I find this can be problematic in that I'm creating a habit of switching objects mainly to hearing, hearing the word in my head, rather than seeing the original object arise and cease. I find that the only way this doesn't occur is when I don't actually say the word to myself but rather just know that I'm experiencing the object as it is. I know you say this isn't the correct way, so I'm wondering if I just continue to say the word and eventually my focus will stay with the original object. Well, it might or it might not, but there's nothing wrong with just saying hearing, hearing when you hear the word in your head. I mean, the mind is a tricky thing and it, it, it plays tricks on you and when you don't like what it's doing, it does it more. You know, you're, you're giving it energy, so you have to be, you know, flexible. Your mind is going to play all sorts of tricks on you. So if you find yourself obsessing over the words themselves, then great. Well, learn about that and try to see that until eventually your mind says, "Okay, well that's useless," and it stops doing that. Because I mean, it's, it's, it doesn't have to be that way. Many people are not that way. But if you happen to be that way, well, then there's an interesting opportunity for you to study it. But you would also want to note all your the other things because it's kind of it's you you have to you have to look carefully and you'll start to see that it's, it's not really the case that you, that your mind is always um, hearing. You know, it's just that your mind keeps going back to that probably because there's some kind of doubt or worry about it. And am I still hearing the word? And so you'll think about the word again. And so you have to note everything else as well, the worry and the disliking and the frustration if it comes up, that kind of thing. Don't let it, don't let it, um, don't, let it don't let it become an obsession. Try to note everything. Which I know you seem to say, is, you say seems to be the problem, but I guarantee it isn't problem is that your mind is playing tricks on you, most likely. Is there a recommendation on how often we should shave our heads? Nope. Oops, sorry. Why would, I have such, why would I have such a recommendation? Sorry, I forgot to hit the button. Just, is there a recommendation on how often we should shave our heads? No. But for monks there is, right? Well, he's not a monk, is he? She? I don't know. If they're a monk, then they already know the right. They already know the answer. I'm sure they've been given it. Okay. 
it's not a recommendation, there's a rule. And you can't let your hair grow longer than two months. In fact, today is supposed to be my shaving day. But it's just a... I'll do it tomorrow. Tomorrow's the full moon. So the day before the full moon is the day yeah, for monks? That's just Thailand. In Sri Lanka, they, they shave their heads very often. Um. Too often, in my mind. I have a question about non-self. Why in Buddhism and meditation Sorry. Why in, Bu in Buddhism and meditation there is that detachment of the self? When you are in pain, aren't the nervous system of your own body the ones that feel the pain? Or isn't your body part of self? Same with emotions. Is some obscure consciousness which plays the part of observing which is the self? Or even that isn't a self? If there is no self, why nature has brought us divided to people and didn't create a single consciousness. Yet in your videos re you refer to an idle state where each person is an island which suggests a singularity. Can you elaborate on that or direct me to oh or perhaps you mean that non-self is a product of meditation? I would probably recommend that you don't worry too much about all of this stuff. Most of these questions are inconsequential. Do you suffer? Most likely. That's a, the question is, a better question is, why do we suffer? How can we free ourselves from suffering? That's more important. We suffer because we cling to things as stable, satisfying, controllable, me, mine. Once you start to see that they are not stable, satisfying, controllable, not worth, not, not appropriate to be called me, mine, then you start to let go and you'll suffer less. And that is how non-self is a product of meditation. During walking meditation, I experience that I'm not the person that's walking. Is it best just to know? Yeah, you might say knowing, knowing, or feeling, feeling, but knowing is probably the best. I mean, that's kind of a classic um, realization of non-self. It's, it's, or it's a product of the realization of non-self, this disorienting state, because it's different from what you're used to. You're used to thinking, this is me walking. But once you catch yourself not thinking that, it's kind of disorienting. And, whoa, it's, that's weird. But it's normal, you know, because it isn't you that's walking. It's just states arising and ceasing. Hi, Bhante. When there is wrong view, when there is wrong view, always follows wrong intention? Or after wrong view, there can be right intention? It's not quite that simple. If you want a, a accurate answer, you can't talk in terms of wrong view and wrong intention. You have to talk in terms of mind states. Because um, you're asking an absolute question, what is possible? 
In that sense, you have to talk in terms of Abhidhamma, which is more complicated than that. Wrong view leads to wrong intention, but you, you can't put it any more absolute than that to say always, not always, or can, cannot. Talking about what can and cannot be, you have to be a little more precise, and then you have to talk about Abhidhamma. Wrong view doesn't really work, and wrong intention doesn't really work there. Wrong view is a bad thing, it leads to wrong intention. It is my understanding that people experience a great amount of fear before natural death and untimely deaths. If your mind state determines your rebirth, does this common state of fear have a significant effect on where people are then reborn? Absolutely. You've hit the nail on the head. But not just fear, there's lots of other things. Because what you're looking at is people before they die, but once they actually die, you know, once the body stops working, it can be quite different. They, they'll, be, they'll be afraid, sure, but they also might cling to things. They'll see something familiar. They'll have an image or a vision of something familiar, and they'll grasp onto that. And that'll give rise to their new life. but they are propelled by fear. Absolutely. How should we deal with visuals that arise during meditation? Note them until they disappear with seeing, seeing, or just continue to focus on the rising and falling of the abdomen? Absolutely say seeing, seeing until they go away. If after a long time they don't go away, then come back to the rising and falling but do note them for some time. That's one of those statements I'm just translating from Ajahn Tong. A lot of what I say is it's just the literal translation of what he always says, word for word. Is depersonalization simply the awareness of non-self? Depersonalization is just a word. I'm not really comfortable or familiar with it. Awareness of non-self is something you see about a thing, an experience. And it's not even intellectual. It's just how you perceive something. It's not even a positive quality. It's a negative quality. It's not something. You, you don't perceive something as self. That's the experience of non-self. It's not like, oh, this is non-self. This is the problem I think people have, is that they say, non-self, I can't see that. Well, of course you can. You don't, it's not about seeing it. It's about giving up the idea that something is self. Once you, you realize that it's not that, it's not what you thought it was. You see it just as something that arises and ceases, basically. Depersonalization is maybe an effect of that. You, know, you become less conscious of yourself as an individual or as a, as a personality, as having these traits, because you don't, because those traits arise and cease and come and go and change. So the idea of having a personality is, or, or you're not quite talking about depersonalization, yeah, I'm not familiar with it, so not my cup of tea. I think you're all caught up on questions, Bhante. Awesome. Thanks, Robin. Thank you, Bhante. Thanks, everyone, for your...
tuning in. Let's take a look here. There's 47 people watching, 50 at one point. That's about it. 27 people logged into the meditation site. Good. Glad to be of service and help. Thanks everyone for tuning in. Have a good night. Wishing you all the best. Good night.